You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer. Taking a turn in the hosting chair this week, uh, another uh, busy, busy week in North Carolina politics and a lot of uh, fireworks between the, the presidential campaign coming to town yet again and uh, some various uh, court uh, goings on uh, this week that, that made it into the news. Uh, so we've got the full panel here uh, with us. We'll talk about the, the presidential campaign and, uh, of course, headliners of the week a little bit later in the program. But we're going to start off with some of the more uh, state-level news that we had uh, going on this week. And we'll start off with uh, Craig Jarvis from the News and Observer. Uh, Craig, you covered uh, a fairly interesting drama involving um, uh, up until now fairly little-known state employee uh, who oversees some water quality issues and uh, the governor's uh, – main staffers. Uh, tell us a little about that and how that wound up into a 9.30 press conference that we weren't, weren't invited to. 9.30 p.m. P.m., uh, yes. Yeah. Well, that was, it's been a strange uh, situation bubbling up uh, kind of behind the scenes. Uh, the, the state's toxicologist in the Department of Health and Human Services, Ken Rudo, had problems with the uh, do-not-drink letters that the state sent out last year to neighbors, uh, well owners who live near uh, Duke power plants because of uh, concerns that coal ash is seeping into their water wells. So the state sent out a do not drink letter. Then um, uh, that was last June. Then in March, the state rescinded them. The new uh, newly appointed uh, state health director, uh, Randall Williams, came in and uh, and wanted them rescinded. And uh, this toxicologist was apoplectic. He said, we just don't know enough about it and uh, we shouldn't do that. So he says he got a call to uh, report to the governor's office one day and uh, and was told uh, that he the, the concern was expressed that he, that certain people wanted the uh, the warning letters downplayed a little bit and uh, he said well we can't do it that way uh, anyway there was kind of a minor part this came out of a deposition that he that he gave in July and that deposition surfaced earlier this week in some court filings. But um, the McCrory administration had an, an odd response. They, they, they decided to challenge him and say, "Well, McCrory never took play, t- took part of this meeting, and uh, you know that he's lying under oath." And very strongly worded language by uh, the governor's chief of staff, uh, staff Thomas Stith. And uh, really, though, the, he didn't. Drudo didn't say these things exactly that way in the deposition. He just said that he he was called to the governor's office. He met with the communications director. The governor called in, and the communications director relayed some concerns. So it wasn't that he said anything that the governor's office is denying now. It's so it's a little little messy. It is kind of a melodrama. Yeah, this is pretty unusual to hear the governor sort of call a press conference, or at least the chief of staff, uh, to accuse um, a state employee of essentially perjury. So this guy is technically, as far as we know, still in his job. He's still and- there. He's he is covered by the Personnel Act, so they can't just fire him willy nilly. He's been with the state for twenty seven years, so I know maybe he's thinking about uh, maybe the end is in sight, but. Yeah, it was very strange. They called this press conference, not only the fact they called it to really kind of dress down a low-level state employee, but they called it at 9.30 at night and invited just a handful of TV stations to cover it. So it was very, uh, very uh, unusual. Uh, uh, the, the, the 
toxicologist Rudo is is kind of used to that sort of bruising uh, give and take. He's been an expert witness at a lot of pollution cases, and you know what what the public health people have to say isn't always popular with uh, uh, private interests. Uh, so he's kind of used to that. But but he uh, he was a little surprised that the governor dressed him down like that. Yeah. Any indication this Rudo guy is at all politically active that he may? And I think the, the McCrory folks would probably like to insinuate that he may have some sort of political agenda, but is there any indication in his background that he would be trying to uh, make some sort of political case against the governor? He is a registered Republican who says he's voted for McCrory uh, uh, this year. And uh, he's been with the state, like I said, for 27 years, so through several administrations. And I think, I think uh, you know, I think people are definitely politicizing it from both sides, but I don't think that was – doesn't seem like – we don't have any reason to think that was his motive. Yeah, outside of that guy, you mentioned politicizing it, so are, are we likely to see this come up as a campaign issue? Is this going to feed into the larger issues about coal ash and McCrory's ties to Duke Energy? Or? Absolutely. It just uh, – McCrory just can't seem to get out from under coal ash. It's been one thing after another since the Dan River spill a little over two years ago. Uh, so there's no doubt. I mean, that's it's going to be – uh, uh, you know, certainly the, the Cooper people or interest supporting Cooper will will hit the environmental angle in general pretty hard. Yeah, is there any sense of where uh, this is going to lead in terms of uh, is, is there any sort of records that are going to come out to pr- prove either the governor's right or that Ken Rudo is uh, in, indeed telling the truth under oath? Well, if we could pry those records loose from the Department of Health and Human Services, maybe we would know. I've had a request in for, for quite some time for those kinds of things, uh, emails and documentations. Some of it is, has come out through the deposition where they, where Rudo actually took notes, contemporaneous notes, which they had read into the deposition. So, um, the, the, and some emails have surfaced, uh, but not, not nearly as many as we'd like to see. Yeah, so I guess there, there may be something, I don't know if the court is going to be getting heavily involved in trying to sort out what's what in this yeah. series of allegations. Yeah, but. there's and there's a tangle of lawsuits. It's hard to even remember which where this particular one started, but it actually was about the Yadkin River, a particular uh, permit issue there. All right. Thanks, Craig. And I'm going to jump over now to uh, Lynn Bonner, also of the NNO. Uh, Lynn has been covering a sort of developing story today on, on Friday uh, regarding a lawsuit just filed uh, about the state's approach to redistricting and uh, trying to draw uh, districts for legislature and Congress for political gain. Lynn, tell us a little about what this lawsuit is claiming. Well, Common Cause and uh, Democratic State Democratic Party and a number of Democrats, uh, voters and uh legislators uh, and former legislators uh, are suing over partisan gerrymandering of congressional districts. Uh, you remember that um, a federal uh, a panel of federal judges um, overturned the congressional districts uh, because uh, they found that two of the districts were racially gerrymandered. Um, and in that redrawing, legislators, particularly uh, Representative uh, David Lewis, said, okay, we're now going to draw these, but we're not going to pay attention to race. We're drawing them to give Republicans political advantage. Um, and he repeated that over uh, several times over a couple of days. Um, and now uh, s- the Common Cause is saying is going to court and uh, – is anticipating taking this to the Supreme Court, um, uh, arguing that uh, 
the uh, partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional, unconstitutional, violating the First and Fourteenth Amendments. Um, talked to Bob Phillips today, who said he thinks the time is ripe for this kind of lawsuit. Um, so uh, we'll see what happens here. We haven't heard back from uh, legislative leaders, but uh, I'm sure we will later today. So is this sort of a, an untried, untested approach to trying to contest these things based on you know, sort of the lawsuits we've seen in the past that have really focused more on the uh, racial gerrymandering aspect of it? Well, the uh, court in the past has said that um, uh, – Partisan gerrymandering is allowed, but um, there have been a couple of indications that Bob pointed to and uh, that are pointed to in, in their court filing that say some of the, um, uh, the Supreme Court justices may be questioning that uh, at this point. Um, so we haven't seen a, um, a lawsuit uh, progress very far um, in this state. Uh, arguing uh, a partisan gerrymander, but um, we've got one now. Yeah, and I guess there's plenty of arguments to base that, because I I guess the the approach of the legislative leaders always has been to say, yeah, we are trying to get as many Republicans elected as we can. They're trying to avoid any comments that go into any sort of racial considerations. Well, they certainly, be, yeah. they, they certainly did this year, um, faced with that, that uh, court opinion, and uh, really hammered home that it was they were drawing the lines for to give Republicans uh, advantage. Um, so we'll see what uh, we'll see what the courts have to say. Yeah, and I guess we still have another lawsuit pending on the uh, legislative district. Oh, the legislative so I guess we'll districts. find out at some point right. um, if a court wants to to strike those down and force redistricting on the legislative stuff the same way they have with the the congressional right. districts this year. So more to watch on that front. Uh, thanks, Lynn. And I'll jump back to Craig real quick for another lawsuit uh, issue that's been in the news this week, and that's the uh, the voter ID case, uh, which uh, I guess popped up. Uh, just was it Thursday night that we heard uh, the effort to stay the the ruling against North Carolina's voter ID law was denied, uh, which I guess effectively means that um, the new voter ID law not going to be in effect for for this election unless other higher courts take action soon, uh, which means that we'll be going back to the uh, requirements uh, and lack of ID required uh, as we've seen in, in past elections. Uh, but this is percolated very quickly into the, the governor's race. Craig, tell us a little about that. Yeah, not surprisingly the uh, uh, that it percolated there. Uh, what happened is, I guess on Monday morning, the governor held a, a news conference, which we weren't expecting, uh, to say that, that they had just been informed by the attorney general's office that they are not going to defend any longer uh, the state in the voter ID uh, lawsuit. And so uh, the point of the press conference was to kind of hammer home this campaign thing that the attorney general isn't doing his job. He's picking and choosing what cases to participate in. And uh, the governor kind of amped things up by saying, I think he should not be collecting a paycheck because he's not doing his job. Um, Cooper was just saying we gave it our best shot. We took it to appeal. We lost. And now it's time to to move on. There's other attorneys uh, representing the governor and the legislature, and Cooper said, well, let them take the case, but I'm not doing it, which, uh, of course, is a political point on his his part. He is there are certain cases that he's not going to be a part of because he doesn't agree with them. 
Yeah, that's a sort of challenge for an attorney general running to be governor is that uh, there's a lot of things, particularly if you're a candidate from the minority party, uh, you're going to be opposed to, and then you're put in the awkward position of, do I defend this in court? And yeah. if I defend it in court, how far do you take it? Do yeah. you push it all the way to the Supreme Court if, right. if Republicans want to, or do you say, well, you know, we tried? Yeah. In some cases, he has uh, defended, even though he personally has announced that he's opposed to them. It's, you know, his job is to, <coughs> excuse me, defend the state and state agencies and lawsuits, but part of being a lawyer is to advise your client, you know, when to fish or cut bait. So yeah. So uh, just to be clear, though, the the legislature and the governor have essentially already put outside attorneys on this. So the Cooper's decision, I guess, is not necessarily going to cost gonna the cr- state more. It's not going to. No, it's not. Well, I guess the only cost would be continuing to appeal. Yeah. So Cooper bailing out. I, I guess it's state time. It's it's kind of hard to track. You know, people keep saying how much has been spent on litigation. It's kind of hard to track. There's been a lot of cases, and, you know, this is what – there is a staff at the attorney general's office that spends 40 hours a week doing their job, which includes, uh, you know, these kinds of cases. So they're not – it's not like extra money uh, that's being spent. Yeah, and then you've got these outside attorneys that have been brought in for uh, a whole host of different lawsuits against uh, things that Republicans have have passed. So uh, I guess those folks will still be around and still – Right. There's more money to be made from from that sort of work. Right, because I don't know if the end is in sight. I mean I I would hate to be connected or working for the Board of Elections because – it's just a continual bait and switch game with them. They just uh, right now they're going back to what the law was with a different voting period, early voting period, and you know restoring the pre-registration and all sorts of things like that. Yeah, and I guess the counties <clears throat> I saw somewhere have to come up with a completely new plan for mm-hmm. uh, how they're doing early voting because the the sort of times and locations that they would have selected yeah. uh, a few months back are no longer necessarily valid under the previous version yeah. of the law. So I think they have to come up with three or four scenarios, or they probably should be at all times for every development and this is just what we know as of you know this hour on friday so. yeah and it says you know we still have a ways to go before november so who knows what's gonna uh shake out uh, between now and then yeah all right thanks craig well we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to uh talk a little bit about uh the latest developments in the presidential race here in north carolina stay with us These are the sounds of someone taking their eyes off the road. Texting while driving is more than distracting. It's dangerous. Do us all a favor. When you're on the road, stay off the phone. A message from CTIA, America's wireless companies, and the National Safety Council. And welcome back to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer, sitting in the hosting chair this week. And joining me for this segment to talk uh, presidential politics is uh, Brian Anderson of the News and Observer. Brian, you and I had fun uh, this week uh, going to see Mike Pence here in Raleigh. Uh, tell us a little about the uh, – as someone who's gone to probably how many Donald Trump rallies now? I think like this has got to be my fifth Donald Trump rally after Winston-Salem I've been to. <laughs> yeah, so uh, com- compare for a minute the, the Mike Pence experience to the Donald Trump experience. Well, I mean, first of all, you got to look at the location of where it was. Donald Trump had about 
a few thousand people last time he went to the Duke Energy Center, and that was over kind of in the main area. But I'm not sure the name of where we were at, but it was just some side yeah, theater. The, the Fletcher Opera Theater, exactly. which an opera theater is a, it's almost to be a hilarious place to have a, a Donald <laughs> Trump-related campaign <laughs> event. But Yeah, and then there were maybe about 400 people. And I remember I texted you early in the morning around 7 a.m., and I said, well, Colin, uh, they want us to be there 8.30, checking for this 10 p.m. event starting. And you said, well, I'm going to plan on getting there closer to 9. Yeah. Let well, me yeah, see you if texted, I can. You texted me. I was, like, about to get in the shower. I'm like, well, <laughs> I'm not getting there at 8.30, so let's let's hope for the best when I get there. Yeah, and then you just didn't need a press pass or a credential at all. You got in, and there, by the time you got in, you were still around 9 p.m. when the events were starting and then an hour ahead of Pence beginning to speak. And there were several rows that were empty by the time you arrived. Yeah, so I got there at 9, right, when the advertised event start time was. And so this is a theater that's got, like, a lower level than it's got a balcony that's probably, like, half the seating. And the balcony at that point wasn't filled up. I think that it started to fill in a little bit closer to when Pence went on at at 10. But it was still, I think, a total of maybe 300 people, which uh, compared to the sort of rallies that Donald Trump has drawn, Winston-Salem, Raleigh, the various places he's been in this state and around the country, just doesn't... It doesn't have the, quite the spark uh, among Trump supporters to come out no. and see Pence. Uh, but the rhetoric is completely different. Like, to me, though, it, what struck me is I felt like I was watching a completely different presidential campaign. I, I mean, don't know about you. Like, yeah, the, like listening just to the introduction music. It's calm. It's peaceful. Yeah. And I don't know if that was— relaxing. It's old, good, good old-fashioned Indiana country music. You yeah, know? you know, that was—and uh, I, I couldn't—we were trying to figure out if that was um, the— Trump-Pence campaign choice with the music prior to the event or whether that was just like house music for the the opera theater right. but it was this very mellow acoustic music and I was like I really felt like I was you know waiting to see like Garrison Keillor give a <laughs> you know tell stories to the NPR crowd instead of a you know Trump rally where we were going to hear people yelling lock her up and, right. and that sort of thing and then I guess flash forward a little bit to the event beginning we had Senator Tillis finish talking around 9.45, and if my memory's correct, he has been at previous campaign events yeah. in attendance, but not as a speaker. I think this was his first speech, and what was right. interesting to me, and I don't know if you noticed this as well, Tillis seemed to be more eagerly on the Trump train than the others who spoke. We also heard from Attorney General candidate Buck Newton and yeah. uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, all of whom were, I mean, they were clearly endorsing Trump. But, but they just weren't, again, very strongly against Clinton as the driving force. Yeah, and they were more eager to talk about themselves in North Carolina State politics yeah. and stuff than um, Trump. But, uh, you know, Tillis got up there and said, make America great again. Like, he's he's firmly on board. Yeah. And I don't know if that has something to do with the fact that he's not on the ballot this year. So he can he can kind of go whichever way he wants on support for Trump because, you know, he's got, what, four years left in his term, I think. Right. before Plenty he, of time. Yeah, before he goes before the voters again. By that point, either, you know, Trump will be uh, a president running for, I guess, his second term or <laughs> he'll be a, a distant memory. Um, right. So that that was an interesting part. But then after what, Tillis got off stage. Yeah, Tillis got off stage, 945. You're calm. Everyone's waiting for Pence to get on stage. And yeah, start. that music's playing. And the music's the- playing. And then at like 955, like five minutes before Pence is going to get on stage, this former Bernie Sanders supporter who actually kind of wants to run for president, yeah. she said, she rushes on stage. She goes in front of the podium because you have the lectern with the mic and she just went in front of it like about 10 feet in front of the first row and started clapping we couldn't quite hear what her chant was and make it out but she was rallying up and getting she was speaking about sort of love thy neighbor and stuff it was all very generic so the 
Yeah. The crowd, I think, initially didn't know whether she was supposed to be there or not. Yeah, she was this hype person for yeah. And she, she brought so much energy to whatever she was doing that people sort of chanted along with her, and they applauded her. And, and it went on for like two straight minutes or two three, or three straight minutes. minutes. Felt which, like ten. <laughs> I know. That was the thing. was When, when I started, it started to dawn on me, like, I don't think she's part of the official warm-up acts. No. <laughs> and, and then she continued for a while, and, and even when she took the stage, whoever was running the soundboard cut the music so we right. could hear her talk. Because they thought she was a part of it. Too. Yeah, and then so then finally the uh, I guess they were Secret Service guys. They may have just been private security. It was a little hard to tell. Mm-hmm. Finally escorted her off stage, and I guess escorted her out of the uh, the audience or out of the building. Right. Um, and then after that, you saw uh, a very heavy Secret Service presence on stage. In fact, by the time Pence got up there, yeah. there was probably a four an officer at every, every corner. single corner That's... of the stage, just like watching to make sure nobody else pulled that. But it was uh, it's one of those moments where you know it's it's kind of funny because the person was clearly harmless, but uh, it does make you wonder about the the security arrangements at, at these sort of uh, yeah. affairs. And I guess the sense was that the vice presidential candidate, you don't have quite the the heavy security that you would get. Um, at a, a presidential candidate event, uh, but certainly coming off as I have the, yeah. the two uh, conventions where I was basically going through the full TSA treatment and then some to even <laughs> get within like a mile of the right. the venue to, to just kind of get to this and be like, oh, so random people can walk on stage. That's cool. <laughs> but the other interesting thing, and I don't think anyone really caught up on this, was we saw uh, about kind of three main sections on the, the first level, left, center, and right, and then uh, stage left, so we were center and to our right, just a few feet away from just the general people sitting there were Pence's, I think Pence's wife was there. Yeah, they had this and little And like- Tillis was, was there, and there was very minimal security there. But then the, the funniest thing for me was the, the woman, Melissa Boyette, who was the Sanders supporter who got on stage after she got escorted out. Uh, we saw just like a bunch of security guards get up on stage confused as heck and like pointing in random directions. You could tell they were trying to figure out how she what got the heck up happened. There. Um, <laughs> and apparently she just, you know, because like, it looked like she, from where I was sitting, she did somehow get backstage to come out. She didn't like go to the front row no, and no, jump no. on stage because then people would have realized, yeah, she, she was just jumping on stage. She just came from the curtains. Yeah, backstage. so it looked like it made it look more legit to everyone in the audience than it was, which was interesting. So that's... And, and the funny thing out of all that, that's not the most news were... That's not the quirkiest thing that happened in the rally. Yeah, you know, I think actually we were the only ones to really even do a, a little takeout on that that particular piece. Like, yeah. the, the rally got interesting after that in a way is that most of the other media there focused on this story, and you mm-hmm. can kind of go into more detail on what, what happened on uh, once the, the Q&A portion got going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, once Pence talked, it was about 50 minutes long, the event, as far as just Pence himself speaking, and it was split pretty much evenly, 20, 25 minutes, him talking, giving us a speech, yeah, why very, supports Trump, very casual. typical campaign stump speech. Q&A starts, and this little 11-year-old kid named Matthew, he raises his hand, asks uh, Governor Pence a question, and you could see the full transcript, Brian R. Anderson on my Twitter account, and just look up the article at newsobserver.com. And he says this exactly. This is the little 11-year-old kid verbatim. He says, I've been watching the news lately, and I've been noticing that you've been kind of softening up on Mr. Trump's policies and words. Is this going to be your role in the administration? And Governor Pence, meanwhile, he hears that, and he's taken back. He's like, so, so what'd you ask again? 
Yeah, and the kid you. says, oh, you've been softening up on Mr. Trump's policies. You could tell he was expecting when a kid gets up, he's going to get a softball question. Like, yeah. you know, what's like, your favorite, what's your sports, favorite team? sports team? What yeah. do you like? And he gets the hardest question I've seen this election cycle to Governor Pence. And after joking that the, the kid should run for governor, he started just actually answering the question saying that, well, sometimes things don't always come out like you mean. I absolutely support Donald Trump or shoulder to shoulder. And then Governor Pence later on in his answer, he said, but I would tell you in style, uh, or I should tell you that differences in style shouldn't be confused with differences in conviction. And then he went on to talk about how Trump has the right policies. But it was really interesting to see Trump and Pence, their different personalities really come out throughout the course of this campaign. And Pence actually talking a little bit about that because it really hasn't been too heavily discussed outside of the convention. Yeah, that's a it's a memorable moment. Like one point, he uh, Pence mentioned that he was once uh, referred to as "born to be mild." Yeah, at a motorcycle, uh, some sort of motorcycle rally event in Indiana, and someone sent out a, a photo on social media with Governor Pence on the motorcycle, and underneath it, it's saying "born to be mild." So Pence played a little bit to that. But then the funnier part was after the event, getting to talk with the kid, all the media, CNN, Wall Street Journal, everyone was storming him after the event to try and ask, get his thoughts on Pence's answer. Because it ended up being the story of the day because, I mean, a Pence rally is not, you know, he's not going to say anything that you're not expecting the way you would at a Trump event. Right. And so uh, he said that my concern was that he wasn't going full on with Trump's strong views and I was a little worried that he was softening up. And then I got to interview him one-on-one outside of the Performing Arts Center. And he had, like, this kid's a quote machine. He had my favorite quote I've heard. And Dan Blue even liked it uh, on Twitter. He, and the kid said, and I'm quoting, politics is the greatest thing ever. Well, if you're the person who's not being insulted. <laughs> you know, that's so kind of how I feel about politics and Twitter and all the stuff I do. So this is great fun as long as the insults aren't, you know, headed your direction in the media world. It occasionally gets our direction, but not as much as it does for the politicians. <laughs> and even Tim Kaine was in his rally um, over in Greensboro on Wednesday. He was kind of playing off some of the insults that he was has taken recently, especially with the lapel pin, and then calling out Trump saying that Donald Trump... Uh, would be a year fired president. So it's been a, a very attack heavy campaign. Yeah. And, uh, and even into the Charlotte Observer being torn down that governor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kind of just in a little side note here, the um, email that went out from the governor's campaign uh, was sort of being critical of the, the media and including a video of the Charlotte Observer uh, former headquarters being torn down. And then you uh, tweeted out that, <laughs> well, they have they, they forgot the photo of the fully new renovated facility. <laughs> yeah, you know, I hadn't been to the Charlotte Observer's new building, but they're they're in, like, I think the NASCAR Tower, and everything I've right. heard from their reporters is that they've got some uh, very nice modern digs compared to their old building, and mm-hmm. uh, their old building, I think, is the same vintage of the, the News and Observer building that we're sitting in. So, you know, we're, we're in line for, for better uh, <laughs> situation in the next couple of years as we move out of this building. So that it doesn't quite quite hold water, but it is a nice visual of seeing a, uh, a bulldozer take out the logo of a media organization that you're, you're criticizing for what you believe is, is biased reporting. Or And the best part of that is for only $5, you can help eliminate liberal media bias. That's 
that's a pretty cheap ticket right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's less than the cost of a subscription to our website. So you know, which people should do at newsobserver.com. Yeah, if, if you want to support, you know, what what we view as you know unbiased, fair reporting, reporting, <laughs> uh, support us that way for sure. Uh, but but to jump back to the the presidential campaign for a moment, yeah, we we did see uh, Kane this week. Um, what mm-hmm. I'm hearing is that North Carolina is going to be a must-win state for the Trump folks. And I've got a bigger story coming right. out of that on, on a Sunday that Brian and I are, are, are co-authoring. And you've done some research into the demographics a little bit that will yeah. uh, give us a little preview of, of what you learned in that that we'll be including a little bit of it in our, in our story on Sunday. Well, first and foremost, i got to thank the State Board of Elections for trying to be as responsive to my several media requests as I made. Uh, basically, what I wanted to do is I wanted to look at the last 10 presidential, gubernatorial, and senatorial races. But after talking with the state board and trying to figure out what's accessible online, their system's pretty limited in uh, the data it offers. But I found out I could go back to 1996 and get the last five races for president, governor, senator. And then what uh, the piece that should be coming out Sunday is going to focus on is the latest trends. Uh, in terms of the presidential race in the last five elections. And what I found after talking with Dr. Michael Bitzer and after looking at my data is that uh, 2008 was an unprecedented year for President Barack Obama uh, in terms of getting a lot of Democratic support. We've seen a lot of swing counties uh, start to go the Democrats' way. And overall, I just kind of took an informal canvassing of the 100 counties and found that 46 uh, were ha- have been leaning Democrat lately, 37 have been leaning more Republican, and 17 is just kind of hard to determine the trend. But overall, what this election is going to come down to is the generational divide with millennials. A lot of them have registered as unaffiliated. Partly, I think that's because they don't want to have to associate themselves with the stigma of being labeled with a party. But the other larger story here is the suburban divide. You have uh, an urban population that accounts for about 54% of the total votes in North Carolina. So this race is really going to come down to two things. For the Democrats, the strategy is mobilizing support in the Mecklenburgs, in the Wakes, in the large areas, and building off of the progress that President Obama has made. For the Republicans, it's going to be holding your own in those urban areas to make sure it's not a significant majority going to the Democrats. And at the same time, in the suburbs and in the rural areas, Republicans got to have a very strong showing. Yeah, and I, I understand from the experts I talked to that it's a lot of it's the uh, college-educated white voters, particularly the, mm-hmm. the sort of suburban crowd, that uh, there's a concern that, that Trump's rhetoric has turned off some of those folks who may be more inclined to be sort of the, the pro-business, more moderate Republican-type voters. Um, and there's a worry if those folks don't get out to the polls, if they're not uh, voting Republican, uh, at least on the, the presidential ticket, that that could uh, cost Trump the state. And if he loses the state, apparently um, he's got a much narrow path to victory and to get to 270 right. votes in the Electoral College. So uh, uh, that's sort of driving this this continuing presence of uh, – candidates and campaigns coming to the state. We're going to get a lot of ad money here. Yep. Uh, so there's a lot to uh, to either look forward to or dread, depending <laughs> on your, your view to uh, having a, a front row seat to a presidential campaign like the one we're seeing this year. But uh, general consensus, you've got 12 kind of swing states or, or 12 states to really watch for. And looking at the latest 538 predictions, Clinton's got 10 of those. So there's many more paths to victory for her, like he said. 
even because of just kind of the high number of California delegates, you're already a little bit ahead of the game if you're a Democrat. And for Donald Trump, even the people you've talked to, Donald Trump has to win North Carolina. And I believe you have to go back to the 50s to find the last time a Republican won a presidential race without winning North Carolina. Yeah. And the oddball being Obama having a a big takeover in North Carolina recently, but still a a huge state for Republicans and for Democrats. It would be nice to win North Carolina. Yeah, uh, but but they don't have to. And the the Clinton campaign basically told me that is that they've got multiple ways they can slice and dice the map if uh, they don't win here, much the way that, you know, Obama didn't win the state in 2012. Romney took the state, but that didn't uh, end up being a victory for, for Mitt Romney. Mm-hmm. Uh, so lots to look forward to. Definitely look for read that piece uh, when it comes out. Probably be on the website Saturday sometime and, and in your print edition on Sunday morning. Thanks so much, Brian. And uh, we're going to go out of this segment with a little clip from the uh, 11-year-old uh, <laughs> who uh, ha- had that great question for, for Mike Pence. So we'll take a listen to that, and we'll be back in just a moment with Headliner of the Week. Can we find a young lady? Oh, no, she found a boy. <laughs> so. Good morning, Governor Pence. Um, my name is Matthew, and I'm 11 years old, and I've been watching the news lately, and and I've been noticing that you've been kind of softening up on Mr. Trump's um, policies and words. Is this your role in the? Is this going to be your role in the administration? What did you say that I've been doing? Um, you've been kind of softening up on his words. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, Matthew. Number one, this boy's got a future. Um, <laughs> Let me tell you what, I couldn't be more proud to stand with Donald Trump, and we are shoulder to shoulder in this campaign. Sometimes, you know, what what I've learned, Matthew, and you'll learn it when you're governor of North Carolina. Um, I'm not kidding about that. Is, is, you know, sometimes things don't always come out like you mean, right? And uh, Donald Trump and I are absolutely determined to work together. We have different styles. You might have noticed that. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, said, I said at our convention, I said, you know, we, we nominated someone larger than life, known for charisma, so they wanted to kind of balance the ticket. <laughs> I went on a motorcycle ride last Friday. It was, uh, I really like this. I mentioned this yesterday, but I, I ride motorcycles. Any, any bikers? <laughs> so somebody posted on the internet a picture of me on the motorcycle, and uh, we were leading the annual governor's ride in Indiana. Underneath it, it said, Born to be Mild. <laughs> but, but I would tell you, differences in style, Matthew, should never be confused with differences in conviction. Amen. And I will tell you right now, Donald Trump has the right vision for America. He has the right policies for America. And I'm going to fight every day to tell story. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Head, 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 headliner of the week.
Yes, indeed, it is time for Headliners of the Week, our favorite and final segment of Domecast here at the News and Observer. And we're going to start out this week's uh, Headliner segment with Lynn Bonner. Lynn, who's your Headliner of the Week choice? Well, I think the 11, the 11-year-old at the Pence Rally should get Headliner, but uh, I am going to propose an honorary Headliner. Brian Anderson, our trusty summer uh, uh, intern, Mystery. is yes, is uh, is on his last day, and you know Brian became something of a Trump expert while he was here. Uh, getting to every Trump rally early. So, Brian, I've got something for you. I know you've collected enough material to <laughs> write a book, uh, and this is uh, Trump and Me by Mark Singer. Um, he's a New Yorker writer who uh, compiled some of his Trump writings, and uh, I hope it serves as a form of inspiration for you. Um, and Trump included, uh, he included a, a vignette about Trump writing him a personal note saying, uh, Mark, you are a total loser. I hope that you rise to those heights, and I look forward to your book, Brian. Oh. Thanks for working well, with us. Well, see, this is where I really wish we could have a video going on right now where people can see the cover. I'll, yeah. I'll have to tweet You'll this have out. to tweet this the is, cover. This is amazing. Thank you, Lynn. Yeah, you're welcome, Brian. <laughs> Let's hope that defines your career. <laughs> Don't come back to us as well, a campaign yeah, publicist. Right. I, we had the interview, but I, I'm still waiting for that personal insult from Mr. Trump, so we'll, we'll see what happens down the yeah, line. We'll tweet the book and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping Brian would get us on the uh, the News Observer on the Trump uh, media black, blacklist, but uh, I guess we'll, we'll have to, to keep trying in, in your absence. Still in plenty your of time till November, Colin. <laughs> yep. All right, thanks for that nomination, Lynn, and we'll turn next to Craig Jarvis. Craig, who's your headliner? Well, I'm going to have to go with uh, Ken Rudo, the state toxicologist who has uh, found himself in the middle of quite an uproar over uh, politics and coal ash and uh, uh, money and lawsuits. Uh, he would be my choice. All right, Ken Rudo in the hat along with uh, Brian Anderson. And uh, Brian Anderson, who's your uh, headliner of the week? <laughs> oh, it's hard to top those. I'm going to have, I'm going to, have to give an honorable mention first because this, this won't make it in the podcast and deserves a shout-out. Kristen Davis, I had the opportunity to interview the Sex and the City, City star who played Charlotte. We did a Facebook Live event, so that, I've got to include that as an honorable mention. But my headliner of the week is going to be the quirky Pence rally that we were at. We each had a, an interesting sidebar. You wrote one about uh, a Bernie Sanders supporter, uh, Melissa Boyette was her name, and she just stormed onto the stage before, I think like five minutes before the rally. But then there was a larger story during the rally, uh, Q&A portion, Pence fielded a question from this 11-year-old kid who essentially asked Governor Pence, what do you see your role in the administration being? And uh, would it be as essentially a, a, a Trump uh, apologist? So between the 11-year-old kid and the, the quirky Sanders supporter coming on stage, that's going to be my headliner of the week. All right. Quirky Mike Pence rally, which you don't get too many of those because Mike Pence is definitely <laughs> a more button-down approach to politicking than his, his running mate. So thanks for that, Brian. Uh, so we've got uh, in, in the uh, hat for headliner this week, uh, Ken Rudo, the embattled state toxicologist, Brian Anderson, the hopefully not embattled uh, departing News <laughs> Observer intern here, and... Uh, also the quirky Pence rally. And I think I have to go with Brian on this one. Brian's been uh, a <laughs> great help to us here on the political team all summer. You've seen a lot of his work in the paper. Um, <laughs> so thanks for Lynn for nominating him <laughs> and uh, in, uh, getting uh, his work out there. And that's a pretty awesome gift. So you'll have that to uh, uh, look at and, and remember your time with us. But uh, I definitely uh, 
keep following Brian on Twitter. I'm sure he's he's going places in terms of the political journalism world, and we're we're going to see more from you, even if you're not interviewing Trump on our <laughs> behalf uh, in the future. Well, W for headliner of the week. It goes back to the old saying, everybody deserves a fifth chance, and I'll take it. <laughs> yep. All right. Thanks, Brian. And that's all the time we've got for Domecast this week. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer. Thanks so much for listening to us, and we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 